Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 1, Episode 36, Fly Fishing for Shad. This is the same talk I gave at the recent 12th Annual Fly Fishing and Wine Festival in Waynesboro, Virginia. If you were there, this is the same stuff. I told you I would put it up on iTunes, so you can listen at your leisure. And if you were not at the show, this is going to be new to you. This podcast piggybacks on Fly Fishing... Annual Periodicity Podcast I did a while back, as well as the Fish Taxonomy. So what I'm going to talk about are fish migrations, taxonomy, the different species of shad, identifiable characteristics, angling techniques, and internet resources. Annual Periodicity, basically every spring when river temperatures reach an average of 55 degrees Fahrenheit, these fish arrive from the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. They swim upstream to spawn and then return to the bay and ocean. Their eggs will hatch and the fry will stay in the river through summer and fall and then migrate out of the river before winter starts. Shad are river specific, meaning that each major river along the Atlantic coast appears to have a discrete spawning stock and the adults return to their same natal or native river to spawn. The next term is diadromous. Dia meaning through and dromus meaning running. These fish are running through the rivers. They're truly migratory fish and they migrate between the sea and fresh water on this annual basis. The term anadromous refers to diadromous fishes, which spend most of their lives in the sea and then migrate to fresh water to breed. Dromus meaning running and ana meaning up. So they're up and running through these rivers. Unlike salmon, shad generally do not die after reproduction. 
Taxonomy for these fish, they're Kingdom Animalia, Phylum Chordata, Class Actinopterygii, Order Clupeiformes, and Family Clupeidae. Remember that fish and generally all animal species, their family will end in I-D-A-E. The subfamily Alosinae and the other subfamily Dorosomantiae. Let's talk about the family Clupeidae. These are the family of herrings, shad, sardines, and menhadens. It includes many of the most important forage fishes in the world. If you want to read more about the forage fish, you can read about menhaden in the book titled The Most Important Fish in the Sea. Alosinae are the shad or river herrings. And if you go to my website, I've posted a picture, but the uh, DNR from the State of Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania has a great know your fish shad and herring identification. So if you were at the show, you saw this picture, and it has American shad, gizzard shad, hickory shad, alewives, and blueback herrings. And when my clients go out for fishing for shad, they say, what are we going to catch? Well, I say it could be an American shad, a gizzard shad, hickory shad, alewife, blueback herring, could be a white perch, a yellow perch, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, striped bass. Could be a needlefish, it could be a gar, it could be a crappie, could be a bluegill, could be a channel cat, could be a blue cat, it could be a snakehead, it could be a common carp, it could be a goldfish, or it could be a chub. There are that many different fish in the river at this time during the spring migration, and you really don't know what you have until you get that fish to the net. So the types of shad, I've already mentioned some. American shad are also known as white shad. You have hickory shad, blueback herring and alewives. And gizzard shad. I'm going to talk about the key identification and characteristics of these fish. And if you want, I will have the website uh, on my blog where you can get all this information and the photographs of these fish. A lot of this is taken from the Maryland DNR site. And the rest is basically um, my background in biology and fly fishing for shad since 1996. So the American shad is going to be more of a, a teardrop shape and with an equal and top dorsal and ventral side, there is going to be one to five spots along its shoulder behind its gill or, or perculum. And the mouth terminates with the upper jaw and the lower jaw meeting at the same place. Clearly defined fork tail. The hickory shad is going to have a teardrop shape, but it's going to taper more towards the back with the dorsal being straight and the ventral being more curved. One defined spot over the shoulder or operculum. A large eye with the lower mandible or jaw jutting out from the top jaw. You can refer to this as an underbite or having a cash register jaw. Blueback herrings and alewives look very similar. They're smaller than the shad and they're laterally compressed, meaning from left to right, they're going to be skinnier or more narrow. They will have a spot behind them and usually more of a a greenish olive to blue tinge on them. They're very hard to distinguish between the two species. And the gizzard shad, you're first going to know that they're a little larger. They're slimy. They stink. They're going to have a, a pinkish tinge to them. A large black spot behind the gill. Their mouth is subterminal. It's very small. They have a vertical pupil. And they have a thread off the back of their dorsal fin. So the American shad's Latin name is a low Alosa sapidissima. Alosa is an old name for European shad, and sapidissima means the most delicious. These are the largest of the shad, and they can grow up to 30 inches. 
They reach sexual maturity at four to five years old and return to the rivers at up to five pounds, an average of three to five. The adults can live, uh, or basically all the shad wants to become adults. Eight to nine years is the general lifespan of the American shad. They're silvery fish with a row of dark spots along its side. The spots on the shoulder are more noticeable, but usually only one dominant one is observed. They have sharp-like scales or scutes along its belly, which you'll notice if you try to hold them with your hand over the dorsal fin and gripping their belly. They're very sharp. It's almost serrated like a saw. The lower jaw, again, does not extend further than the upper jaw. And the adults feed on plankton, small crustaceans, and small fish. However, while they are migrating in the rivers, they do not feed. The juveniles feed on zooplankton and terrestrial insects. These fish, when they're in the river, are going to strike your fly out of aggression. It is in their way while they are trying to go reproduce. Let's talk about spawning. So the spawning females are average age 5 to 6. They can disperse 30 to 600,000 eggs while they're spawning into the water column, and this happens over several days. The males are age 4 to 5, and the fertilization is done externally. So once the eggs are fertilized, they will drift at the mercy of the current, those that do not get eaten will hopefully settle to the bottom where the fry will hatch. Spawning usually occurs over gently sloping areas with fine gravel or sandy bottoms. After spawning, the adults will return to the sea and migrate northward. Their summer feeding grounds probably New England, the Gulf of Maine. The fertilized eggs are then carried at the mercy of the river currents and hatch within 7 to 10 days. The larvae will drift with the current until they mature into juveniles. The juveniles will stay in the river feeding on zooplankton and terrestrial insects. We often catch one to two inch long baby shad on beadhead droppers and pheasant tails in the summertime. By late fall, most of the juvenile shad migrate near the coastal areas and to the winter, wintering areas. And while they're doing this migration, the smallmouth bass are going to gorge on them. So around September, October, the striper run really picks up on the Potomac up here as these fish start moving their way towards the ocean in large schools. And you'll see these schools. There's some of them now from the early hatching shad. In the summertime, you can see a school that might take 10, 15 minutes to swim past you. Some juveniles will remain in the river and estuaries up to one year before entering the ocean. And do remember that the Chesapeake Bay is the world's largest marine estuary. The hickory shad is named Alosa Meadow. Chris, Mediochris. Alosa is the old name for European shad, as stated before. Medio is middle. Don't really know how the Latin jargon fits into its description. Maybe it's because I mentioned it between the other species. Hickory shad have a lower jaw that sticks out further than the upper jaw, which is a key identifying characteristic. A lot of people have trouble identifying these species in the river, so pay attention to these characteristics. They also have the scutes along their belly, the serrated scales sticking out, facing backwards. Their size averages 12 to 20 inches. They're noticeably smaller than American shad, but they are also larger than alewives and blueback herrings. They feed on small fish, squid, eggs, small crabs, and pelagic crustaceans. They are most likely, again, biting your flies out of aggression. They are guarding their spawning area, and you're just pissing them off because they're trying to get you know, their spawn on. These fish will jump when hooked. They spawn in a diverse 
amount of areas within the river from backwaters, tribs, mainstream portions of large rivers, and tidal and non-tidal areas. Temperatures for them range from 54 to 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Speak, uh, got total word salad today. Peak spawning temperatures is 59 to 66 degrees Fahrenheit. Those are key factors when fly fishing for shad. Spawning females, average age, three to nine years old. Again, the males will externally fertilize. The males average two to seven years of age. They will only lay eggs in fresh water. And the fertilized eggs are carried at the mercy of the currents and hatch within a few days. The larvae will then drift with the current until they mature into juveniles. Those juveniles will then again migrate towards the estuaries and ocean at wintertime. The river herring, we classify blueback herrings and alewives together as river herring. Blueback herring are Elosa estivalis. Esteval means summer, so they're your summer herring or shad. The alewives are Losa pseudo harangus. Pseudo meaning fake and harangus herring. They are your fake herring. Alewives and blueback herring again are collectively termed river herring, and I got my quotations on this side. My quotations on this side because they are difficult to distinguish from one another. River herring are silvery in color and have a series of scoots, modified scales, spiny and keeled along their belly. So be careful when holding these fish. Maximum length of a river herring, about 15 inches. So you may think you have a small American shad, but it's probably most likely a herring. Alewives can be distinguished by having a much larger eye than blueback herring. They're thinner and more laterally compressed than shad. If you really wanted to distinguish the two species, you would have to do a scale count from the dorsal to the ventral area and check the amount of rays in their fins. Blueback herring spawn from late March through mid-May. The alewives spawn from late February through April. The mature river herring broadcast their eggs and sperm simultaneously into the water and over the substrate. This is more noticeable than the other species of shad. Immediately after spawning, the adults migrate rapidly downstream back to the ocean. Juveniles will remain in freshwater nursery areas in spring and summer, feeding mainly on zooplankton. Again, zooplankton is different than phytoplankton. Zoo or zoo is Latin for animal, and phyto is for plants. So these are zooplankton, like baby crabs and crustaceans and shrimp, daphnia, that sort of thing. You will notice if you're fishing from shore that the males will push females against the rocks on the shoreline and the shallow areas to spawn. Big splashes. Gizzard shad. They are known as dorosoma sepedianum. Dorso or doro meaning back and soma meaning body. Sepe means head or onion. And die meaning separate across or two and anum ring. So these are your back bodied separate ring onion fish. I consider them the Jawas of the river system. They are filthy creatures. Gizzard shad were characterized by that small, inferior, subterminal, and toothless mouth with a thick walled gizzard like stomach. They do have that one noticeable dark spot behind their gill opening, and the last dorsal ray is formed into a long filament. Gizzard shad produce an excess amount of slime. So when you pick them up, they're going to be slimy and your hands are going to stink. Definitely use a rubber bag net when landing them. Size range 8 to 14 inches, but mainly reach lengths up to 18. So you're going to have pretty much your 10 inchers and your 18 inchers and very few in between. That's what we seem to notice. There's small gizzard shad and big gizzard shad. They differ in their feeding habits from the other fish. They do feed in the river. They'll ingest everything from bottom mud and invertebrates to 
pairs they eat fish. They'll eat other fish's eggs as well. So if the American shad, hickory shad, and alewives and blueback herring are not feeding, these ones are. They will go after your strike indicators in the wintertime. Bizarre fish. They're not valued for human consumption. Their flesh is rather tasteless, soft, and they have more than more like uh, pin bones than the other shad, and they stink. They swim in thick schools in winter and spring. They get foul hooked more often than you would like, and they will hang out in the river over winter near warm water discharges. For us, that is Blue Plains Treatment Plant and in Four Mile Run. And when you're stripping a fly in there for carp in the winter, you often foul hook gizzard shad. And when you're stripping a fly in during the shad run, you'll often hook gizzard shad. Except for this year, I think they spawn probably in early February. We've only seen one or two like come up and gulp air or splash, and we've only landed two. I think they were in and out, and they're back down to their lower tidal areas this time of year. Just all early because the winter was so mild. The mature gizzard shads will broadcast their eggs externally and sperm simultaneously near the surface. So what often looks like a fish coming up to eat a bug off the surface is usually going to be a gizzard shad. Their eggs are sticky. They sink to the bottom and adhere to submerged objects. After spawning throughout the summer months, adults and young can be found both in tidal fresh and slightly brackish waters close to the bottom in shallow waters. Once um, late May arrives, we won't catch one probably until December. So they, they just go back downstream, thankfully. They're nasty. All these fish are considered a major forage fish for larger species. A lot of gizzard chatter stocked in large reservoirs to feed the bass populations, which are also introduced. They are large. They comprise a large amount of the diet of the striped bass that are in the river. They comprise a large amount of the diet of bluefin. I'm sorry, bluefish that are in the, the bay and the ocean. The Shad sustained troops during the Revolutionary War. You can read all about that in John McPhee's book, The Founding Fish. They sustained Native Americans. They were traditionally planked, which means they were butterflied, and then nailed to a board over smoking fire. And you can still see fish wares, which are V-shaped rock structures made by Native Americans, right below the Route 1 bridge in Fredericksburg. And these fish would swim upstream, and then the Native Americans would corral the mouth off of that V, the open spot, and trapped the fish inside. American shad were introduced to California in 1871 to the Sacramento River, and they're in a couple other places throughout the West, and they are now genetically different due to their geographic isolation from the shad on the East Coast. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
The dams along the East Coast have traditionally prevented these fish from reaching their natal grounds. The Embry Dam was removed in Fredericksburg about seven or eight years ago. That was found about a mile or two upriver from the fall line in Fredericksburg. And the fish basically had a dead end there for about 100 years. Once that dam was removed, these fish could go all the way upstream past the tidal section into the Piedmont, which means foot of the mountain, and they would go all the way out to Route 29, which is um, Culpeper. So think about where Fredericksburg is on a map, and then think about where Culpeper is. That's about 30 to 40 extra miles west, and they could go further to the base of the mountain or the montane region. Virginia is separated into Tidewater, Piedmont, and Mountain. In Rock Creek in Washington, D.C., they are stopped at the dams that have been produced. The Susquehanna River has the Conowingo Dam. The Occoquan has a dam that prevents them from swimming up. They used to get all the way to Bull, through Bull Run and up to Dulles Airport back in the day. And in D.C., we have Little Falls, which has all these have rudimentary fish ladders, which never really work. You'll see kids out at Rock Creek scooping up buckets and nets and dumping them above the falls so they can get up to their native river spawning areas. So definitely, if you where to fish now, you definitely want to fish that tide line. So if you look at a map of Virginia, and just look at I-95, it goes straight from D.C. to Alexandria, to Dumfries, to Occoquan, Fredericksburg, Richmond, Petersburg, and straight down. That is the tide line, or the fall line. All these major cities were built along that because the water's deeper in the tidal section and it gets shallow. So that deep water, you can build ports. That's where they developed large cities. It's a vertical line. Just follow I-95. In Fredericksburg, you want to fish at County Route 607 and Route 1 Bridge. Also, um, Route 17 crosses over there. Just fish that sandy flat downstream. In Washington, D.C., anywhere from Little Falls to Fletcher's is going to have your best access. And you can fish on both sides of the river. Just remember, both sides of the river in D.C. waters are owned by the District of Columbia. So you do need a D.C. license if you're fishing from the Virginia shoreline. I'm going to talk about shore fishing now, wade fishing, and boat fishing. And how you need different hardware and tackle for fishing each different part of the river. The rods you need are 5 to 8 weight. I would err on the larger rod because you don't know if you're going to be catching shad and perch or if you get a snakehead, a gar, or a catfish. So you might need the backbone of a larger rod. Single rods are great from boats. Double-handed are great from shore. So I prefer a switch rod from shore. You want medium to fax action because you're going to be mostly roll casting from shore or overhand casting heavy lines from a boat or from shore, and you need that extra oomph. Your reel should have uh, a solid drag system. Click and pull is fine. You want direct drag. Don't necessarily need anti-reverse. At least 100 yards of 20-pound Dacron backing. If you're fishing from shore, a sink tip, anywhere from 7 to 15 feet. If you're wading, a sink tip, maybe a little bit longer. And if you're in a boat, you want a full sinking line. If you're in very shallow water, a floating line will do you fine. I prefer a weight forward taper on my... Floating lines, usually a bass. Shooting heads are great as well, just to roll that line out there. I like the Rio outbound shooting head. I prefer Orvis bass taper, and I use a lot of polyfuse line because I got those on sale, and I have a trash can full of them. Leaders. Remember, these fish are not leader shy. This can be the most rewarding fishing that is the least technical. So you don't have to go out there and, and have a, a 5X or 6X leader. 
just go out there with a nine foot long leader. You can use zero X shorter leader. If you are using a sinking line and you can just taper it down if you want or build your own. I do 30 or 20 pound to 12 pound, eight pound. You can use fluorocarbon or nylon. But remember, these fish are not shy. They've probably never seen a line before. So they're not going to be like, ooh, what's that thing? This woman in front of me. I'm scared. And you can use straight monofilament. Just take a piece of like 10-pound Berkeley Vanish and tie that onto the end of your line loop and just use that. You can use a poly leader to help you get down, which is usually made by Rio. It's a little bit more dense, and that's great for a floating line. Orvis also makes quick sink tips, which are just a little braided piece of line four to eight feet long and they just do loop to loop connection tie your leader on the end you have an instant sink tip flies like i said this is the least technical fly fishing you don't have to match the hatch remember these fish are not feeding on anything specific they are biting out of aggression so then you have to deal with well is it ethical to be throwing stuff and pissing off fish that are trying to migrate and spawn, especially fish that are considered endangered, that have zero catch limits, there are moratoriums on them? That's a whole nother issue. So, flies. Make it an inch long. Doesn't matter what color. But it should resemble a bait fish. It should be bright colored and your hook should be debarbed. These fish have very soft mouths. They are planktivorous. They're filter feeders. They don't have thick, hard, bony lips and mouth bones for biting down on moving critters. Don't buy expensive flies. You're going to lose them on the bottom. Your fly should have a short tail that should not stick out more than three quarters of an inch from the hook point. If it's a synthetic fly, you can always cut the tail material. But if it's a little bucktail fly, it's not really going to look as good if you cut it. So synthetics, easier to cut. I prefer tandem rigs with a heavy fly first and then a lightweight fly behind that, about 18 to 20 inches. These fish are striking out of aggression. They're not eating. So again, there's no match to hatch. Everyone has their favorite flies and they're definitely regional favorites. I prefer damsel nymphs, clousers, shad jigs, shad darts, and comets. You can also use one-inch rubber tube lures. Fly colors, again, regional favorites. Some swear by pink, some swear by gold. Just keep trying that same pattern in different colors until it works. You don't have to switch up and down the size, just switch the colors. I like chartreuse and white, red and silver, pink and white, or pink and chartreuse. I don't put extra bling in these flies, basically because I'm cranking out a whole bunch at once, and I don't have time to sit there and put an extra crystal flash and some flash of boo and some sparkly glitters. I don't use expensive dumbbell eyes. I'm not using cone heads because we're going to lose these. The Potomac especially is very rocky. There's a lot of logs. And we're roll casting a lot, so you're going to lose a bunch in the trees. So we're using bead chained eyes or lead-weighted jig heads. The all-time go-to fly for me is the Orvis Damsel Nymph. It's in the new catalog that came out. Just go to Orvis and Google Damsel Nymph. It's got that braided marabou tail, little black eyes. It's about a size 10. Truthfully, that's the only fly you should ever fish anywhere. But that's just my opinion. That's my go-to fly when guiding. I throw that in chartreuse with a smidge of crystal flash, and that will catch more fish than anything else. We'll put a comet or a shad jig on or a clouser, and then the dropper is going to be a chartreuse damsel. Guess what all the fish are going to take? chartreuse damsel 
We were out using the Tenkara rod last week with the chartreuse damsel. We were slaying the fish. A sample fly box for me. If someone buys, uh, you know, a group of flies, they want a dozen. I'm going to do um, three clousers, pink and white, three clousers, chartreuse and white, uh, four damsel nymphs, and you do the math. The rest will be little jigs and comets. Fishing techniques. So now you know what rods to use. You know that you're fishing along the tidal zone along I-95 because we're not also driving out anywhere fancy to fish for these. These are in our backyard. This is urban fly fishing at its best. Get that fly down fast. I already mentioned sinking lines like a 350 grain or that polyfuse. It's not a polyfuse. The poly leader. Cast out. So if we're standing on the Virginia shoreline, I want you to cast straight out to D.C. I want you to swink that fly that's a combination of swing and sink. The fish will either hit that on the swing or once you let that fly go straight downstream, slowly retrieve, strip, strip, twitch, strip, 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 twitch, twitch, strip, twitch, strip, twitch, strip, twitch. Keep doing that until you get a bite. Retrieve upstream. The two most important variables, if you're taking notes, write this down, are depth of your fly and the speed of retrieve of your fly. My clients say, well, how deep do I need to go and how fast? Well, these fish are different. These aren't the fish that were here yesterday. They're not the fish that will be here in an hour from now. These fish are migrating upstream. Every time you cast, strip in at a different pace and strip in at a different depth. Once you find that school of fish, you will consistently hook up until that school moves on. And again, you don't have to keep moving up and down river. Find that spot. Wait for the fish to come to you. These fish have soft mouths, so don't do like some super testosterone-driven hook set. Just lift your rod, stick them in the mouth bone, and the fight is on. These fish are swimming from the ocean. They're very strong. They're going to put up a very good fight. And again, you won't know what you have until you land it. I think it was on the Pacemaker Fishing Forum the other day that somebody wrote the Potomac is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And that quote, you know, Forge Gump, is uh, perfect for describing what you're going to get during the shad run. How important are the tides to you? Tides are very important to me. If you've got a smartphone, you can follow the tides. If you've got internet, you can follow the tides. They're in the newspapers. There's on tide charts. Or you can just call your local fly shop and they should be able to tell you. The incoming tide is going to bring a tidal bulge or push of water upstream. These fish can ride that push and burn fewer calories. They can also spread out, which makes it a little harder to find them. Low tides will then concentrate these fish. It puts them in the center of the river and in the deeper spots and ruts. If you're fishing from shore, do not get stuck on a rock when the tide rises. Those rocks may be completely underwater when that tide rises, or you might be stuck on a dry piece of rock that has no connection to land anymore, and you've either got to wait it out or figure out how you're getting back with these very swift currents. When these fish come up, there's going to be large fish behind them trying to eat them. The striped bass will often be riding that tidal push upstream to feed on the herring and alewives. About a month ago, there was a fisherman on the D.C. shoreline, probably fishing a 7 or 8 weight. He caught a herring on a fly when the tide was coming in. A striped bass decided that was an easy prey because it was fighting awkwardly, and it ate the fly on the end of his 
ate the fish on the end of his fly rod. Well, the fight ensued, and he eventually broke his rod right above the cork. And I'm just hearing this from the old-timers down there. They witnessed everything. They're the same guys that told me a guy got spooled on a sturgeon, most likely, a couple days before. So they're, they're going to be in there. If you want to catch the stripers, just throw bigger flies. They'll eat the damselfly, too. So I've told you, you fish from a boat, you can fish from shore, you can wade fish. But where in the river are these fish? They're going to be in deep ruts and grooves, drop-offs, ledges, and channels. They want to be deep down where the water's the slowest to take the path of least resistance. They're swimming from the ocean, and they're trying to conserve their energy, i.e. calories, for spawning. They take the path of least resistance. If you're out at Fletcher's, you're going to notice all those red and white boats are in a line. They're finding the deepest water, dropping anchor, and then fishing over that trough. Same goes for shore. You want to find some deep water, get your fly out and down. Some other things that you might want to have with you. A whistle in case somebody goes in. A cell phone is great. Some people wear life jackets on shore. You can have the inflatable kind. Always, always, always wear your life jacket when you're in the boat. About 12 people die a year in the Rappahannock and up in D.C. together. Because they're not paying attention. They're out on the water. They lose their footing. They get swept in. They fall in. People drown all the time. One very simple way to prevent that, especially you're in the boat, is wear a life jacket. Polarized glasses are great, especially on shore if you are wade fishing because they will show you where to step in and amongst the wet rocks. They will also show you where some of the bigger fish are, like snakeheads. Cleated shoes are great for slimy rocks. When the tide goes down, those rocks are going to be slimy until they dry off. You can add goat head gear, studs, basically screws into your boots. You can go out there with studded boots. I wouldn't go in flip-flops. I wouldn't go in felt. Sticky rubber. That's the way to go. Wading staff is great. A rubber bag net. And a hook file. A hook file is essential, especially in the rocky sections of the Potomac, because you're going to be banging that fly in all sorts of rocks. So every now and then, just bring it up and make sure it's a, that hook's not bent from catching a stick, log, or rock. We also want to make sure that it's still sharp. Some websites and books you want to go to. Forums, tidealpotomicflyrodders.org. Tide charts, saltwatertides.com. There's also the Tide app on your phone. Shadfishing.com. Fletcher's Boathouse. Use Google Earth to find these locations. The NOAA Advanced Hydrologic Charts and the USGS Stream Data, which I'll talk about next. There are variable species identification websites, so you can identify what you're catching and know what is legal and what is not legal to take. Somebody recently posted on the Tidal Potomac website that they took a fish home to do the Japanese print where you paint the fish and then push paper onto it. Well, it happened to be a hickory shad, and he just announced to the entire World Wide Web that he took an endangered species. There's the Shad Cam, which is a camera in Boshers Dam, or Boshers Dam, I was told this weekend, I mispronounced it. And that allows you to see the fish swimming upstream. You'll see everything from eels, lampreys, gars, catfish, carp, American shad, hickory shad, gizzard shad, perch. Pretty much everything will swim past there or drift downstream. There's also the book, The Founding Fish by John McPhee. Let's talk about those advanced hydrologic graphs from the National Oceanographic and uh, Atmospheric Administration. You want the advanced hydrograph, which will tell you about seven 
or eight days worth of stream data, it will tell you five days of past plus about three days in the future. So it'll show a graph, and if it's going to rain, or if it is raining, it'll show you how much that river is expected to go up. You can use that to plan your trip, whether you still want to go or versus you want to cancel it. It tells you in stages and feet and flow in cubic um, in the water level. So is it like 2.9 feet per second, or is it like 10.4 million gallons per second? And it'll tell you the last observed value, the feet, and at what time. And the flood stage at DC is 10 feet. You remember one year ago, about a week ago, that there was a huge flood. It was during the fly fishing festival. We got about eight inches of rain in the mountains. That all washed down the Potomac. And nobody raised the floodgates at all the restaurants in Georgetown. So they all flooded, and they are still closed to this date. The USGS stream data. You can go to the USGS website and find your points. Or you can go to my website or Fletcher's and find the ones for the area where you're fishing. It'll tell you on the left-hand side, discharge cubic feet per second. It'll do like 4,000 feet per second to 10,000 to 20,000. There will be little triangles per day at the average mean flow. And then it'll show a blue line of what the flow is for the past week and at that moment. Provisional data subject to revision. And this data goes back 82 years. The water clarity is very important. Do you need to throw a bushy fly and something sparkly that's going to get their attention that they can hear and feel versus something slim and lightly dressed? Well, the specific conductance, the water, unfiltered microsiemens per centimeter at 25 degrees Celsius. This will basically, what I believe is a laser that shoots out in the water and bounces back. The longer it takes to bounce back means the more particulates in the water, the murkier the water. So if the graph is very low, it means that the water is very murky. If the graph is very high, the water is very clear. The temperature, the water in degrees Celsius, one foot from the riverbed or the bottom. It took me years to figure out that the right side of the graph is temperature, water, degrees, Fahrenheit, one foot from riverbed bottom. The left is temperature, degrees Celsius, one foot from riverbed bottom. I always had to do the Celsius and then do the conversion. But on the right-hand side, it's in Fahrenheit. Remember, these fish are going to spawn at about 60 degrees Fahrenheit. They will arrive when it's 55 and leave when the water's in the upper 70s. So you have a very narrow time. You can look at the graph and say, wow, it's cold today. I'm not going to go fishing. I can look at it and be like, well, last Sunday we didn't catch any fish because the water was 58 degrees. But by the next day, it was 64 degrees. In a 24-hour period, that water level jumped, and that brought the fish in. On Saturday, there were no fish. On Sunday, the river was full of fish. Use these graphs to predict when the fishing is going to be good and when you should go out. And that pretty much sums up fly fishing for shad. I talked about the migrations. These fish are, um, they are anadromous. They're swimming from the ocean to the rivers to spawn, and then they go back. Taxonomy. I told you about the two different major subfamilies that these fish belong to. I talked about the shad species, American, hickory, gizzard, and river herrings. Told you how to fish for shad. Throw your fly out, let it sink, get downstream, and slowly strip it in when the fly is all the way down. But don't wait too long. If you're hooking the bottom, you're waiting too long. Told you what to use. One inch long, brightly colored flies. You don't want to have a long tail because that's going to cover the hook. You're going to get short strikes. Told you where to fish along the I-95 corridor in Virginia. 
If you fish above the tide line, you're going to have more rocks. Below it, you'll have fewer rocks, and the water will be more open. And the Internet resources from the USGS to the National Atmospheric and Oceanographic Institute and the ShadCam, etc. So that basically wraps up my fly fishing for shad talk. You don't get the benefit of having visual aids of photographs and me passing out tactile and sensory things for you to play with. This all brings me back to my days as a high school biology teacher. And I thank you for downloading. I'm going to send this away to Jason. He's going to clean it up, and we're going to get this on iTunes, which you've obviously already found. Thanks for downloading. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, visit www.robsnowwhite.com. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.